We're continuing our series today on this text, Being Christian, a little book by my friend Rowan Williams, and he walks us through the central practices of the Christian community, Christian life together, talking about baptism, scripture, that we're people of the word, Eucharist, this practice of coming to the table, and prayer. And today we're talking about the Eucharist. And what we see in today's gospel text in particular is that Jesus is not mincing words here. Jesus tells us that unless you eat his flesh and drink his blood, we can have no part in him. And you get the sense in this text that this isn't some kind of metaphor. This isn't some kind of spiritual, symbolic language. That there is a a realness, a tangibleness connected with what Jesus is saying. That to eat his flesh... And to drink his blood involves something that you can taste and touch and hold. There's physicality associated with this meal. It is more than just a memory tool that we're doing. Of course, Jesus is saying all of this to first century Jews. People who lived their lives actively avoiding any kind of contact with blood and unclean flesh, let alone eating it and drinking it. This is why some disciples end up turning away and Jesus says to them, are you going to leave me too? And what is their response? Where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And as much as this was a hard word for first century Jews to hear, It can be equally difficult for those of us to hear it 20 centuries later. The Eucharist, coming to the table, this meal, it is the central act of Christian worship over the last 2,000 years. And it's been the cause of great division within the church. And to be sure, for early Christians, often because outsiders who were observing this practice, assumed they were getting together to actually eat someone's flesh and drink someone's blood, that they were, they were some kind of cannibalistic cult that was gathering. That was the assumption. But still, there, there is no practice, there's no act that has constituted and shaped and formed the worshiping community more than coming to the table. We can't say enough about the depth and the mystery of what happens to us and for us every time we come to this table. But I love these words from J.R.R. Tolkien, who summarized the beauty of the Eucharist. If you don't believe me, maybe you'll believe Tolkien today. He says this, Out of the darkness of my life, so much frustrated, I put before you the one great thing to love on earth, the blessed sacrament. There you will find romance, glory, honor, fidelity, and the true way of all your loves upon earth. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Because it says whatever it is that you're looking for, whatever it is that you're hoping to find, you stumble on it in this moment of the Eucharist. If we have any understanding at all of what's happening when we come to the table, not that we can understand it rationally. This isn't about some kind of rational understanding about what's happening, but so long as we are open to the mystery of this moment and how this shapes us more and more into the beloved community. And 
When I say mystery, I don't mean a kind of unknowable kind of mystery. When we say mystery, we talk about the sacraments, we, we're talking more about an endless kind of knowing. That the more and more we give ourselves to something and we practice something and give ourselves over to the sacrament, that it's, it opens up to an endless knowing that we just keep falling into it. That every time we come, so long as we come with an openness to the work of God, this meal continues to reach down into the depths of us and to illumine us in new and fresh ways, week after week after week. One conversation within the church's history that continues to be a point of conflict throughout history is who is this table for? Who's invited to share in this meal with us? And I understand, trust me, I understand the hubris of this kind of comment, but it takes a little bit of hubris to get up and talk to people like you anyway. <laughs> this is something that the church has often gotten wrong more than it's gotten right. And that's a big statement often gotten wrong more than it's gotten right. And to be sure, there are spaces throughout history when protecting this meal and closing this table has been a matter of faithfulness. Moments when that is appropriate and right and needed, necessary. But this table, the table of the Lord, is open to all people. Whoever you are thinking about right now that you would say it's not open to, it's open to them. This meal is for anyone who has a yes in their heart to God. Anyone who loves God, who longs to love God more, as we so often say in the liturgy. And again, if you don't believe me, let's look to the words of Karl Barth. He says this, Holy communion is offered to all as surely as the living Jesus Christ is for all. As surely as all of us are not divided in him, but belong together as brothers and sisters. All of us poor sinners, all of us rich through his mercy. Amen. And we should all add our own amen to Karl Barth today. Somehow we've had this understanding that the Eucharist is for especially holy people. The people who deserve this meal or have earned this meal. The people who are good enough. But that's not the claim at the table. There's nothing that we could do to be good enough, to deserve, to earn what's offered to us in this meal. Let's go to the words of Rowan Williams. He says that holy communion is no kind of reward. It is like everything about Jesus, a free gift. We take holy communion not because we are doing well, but because we are doing badly. Not because we have arrived, but because we are traveling. Not because we are right, but because we are confused and wrong. Not because we are divine, but because we are human. Not because we are full, but because we are hungry. The Apostle Paul talks about this scandal of who is invited and welcome to the table in one of his letters to the Corinthians. And he, he gives this criticism about not coming appropriately as a way of eating and drinking condemnation on yourself. And what Paul is not saying 
is that in order to receive this meal, you have to be morally pure or righteous. Again, who do you think is righteous enough to deserve this meal? How many times do you have to wash your hands before you're clean enough to come and receive and to touch the body and the blood of Jesus? No one is that holy. No one is that righteous. No one deserves this meal. That if anyone is invited to this table, it is only by the grace of God and by the mercy of God. And so the idea that Paul is outlining is not one that only especially holy people can come. The problem, Paul is saying, is that people in the church had started to come to the table in a way that is unfaithful. It's not who is coming, it's how you're coming. So where they had the wealthy and the elite who would eat and gorge themselves and take as much as they wanted to the table, and then everyone else just got the table scraps. And Paul says, in doing this, you're not rightly discerning the body of Christ. That because of this, some of you are sick and some of you are dying. This is the irony. That by guarding the table, protecting it, making sure that only the right people come to the table, that's exactly how you get dangerously close to what Paul is criticizing in the Corinthians. Of course, this is also the central scandal of Jesus' ministry and life, is that he is always found eating and drinking with the wrong people, with the tax collectors, with the zealots, with the sinners. And of course he ate with sinners. Who else is there? <laughs> There's no one else to eat with but sinners. But why? Why is this the scandal? What is the problem? I don't think it's what you think it is. The problem is that if Jesus is eating and drinking with sinners, sitting eyeball to eyeball with the zealots and with the tax collectors, the unholy people, what's happening in that moment, it actually dignifies them. And according to Levitical law, to be around that which is unholy, to touch those unclean things, will actually make you unclean and unholy. But this is the beautiful, upside-down, inverted wisdom of the gospel of Jesus, is that when Jesus gets around the unclean and the unholy and the unworthy, Jesus isn't the one who is made unclean and unholy and unworthy. Jesus touches them and makes them holy. Jesus imparts wholeness and life to the broken and to the dead. Do you know what we call this, this bread and this cup? We consecrate it and we call it the body and the blood of Jesus, which is surprisingly connected to the body and the blood of Jesus. <laughs> and it works the same today as it worked then. There's no difference here. God is not squeamish about your dirty hands. This meal is, again, in Rowan Williams' words, food for the journey. We eat this meal not because we have arrived, because we've done enough, because we deserve it. We eat this meal because we need it. Because we are the ones who are traveling. We're the ones who come hungry. There is no better recommendation that I can give to you 
If you are struggling with addiction, if you're struggling with jealousy, with envy, with disillusionment, with distrust, a spirit of judgment, if you're struggling with faith or the church, come to this table. Come to receive a gift that's offered to you because this is what gives you strength. It's not those who are well that need to receive the medicine. It's not for the whole. This is the meal where the brokenness of Christ fills our brokenness and makes us whole. We say this from time to time that we share in this meal where Christ's body is broken for us and his blood is shed for us so that our lives might be broken open and poured out for the world. But being broken open and being poured out for others, it's not about suffering for suffering's sake. Taking on that posture of being broken open and poured out is so that we might bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus. And that that resurrection might also be possible for us. This is a meal of trust. So, this is what I want us to hear today. And we're just getting started, so sorry. Again, how do you summarize the central act of Christian worship in 20 minutes? You don't. This is what I want us to hear, is that this meal is for all. Not the especially holy or the particularly put together. It is a meal that is about hospitality. But... It does matter how you come to this table. How you approach this meal is everything. You don't need to be a holy person, but you do need to come with a sense of humility and a hunger for what's offered at this table. This meal, of course, it's for anyone who comes with a yes in their heart for God. But when we come without humility, without a heart that bows before God, then the way you approach the table altogether is unfaithful. This is not a meal that we take because we deserve it. It's a meal where we place our hands open in front of us to receive a gift that we don't deserve. And what we receive in that gift is the body and the blood of Jesus, our daily bread. And when we receive that gift, whatever we mean by our daily bread is offered to us. How you approach this table is everything. And I think precisely because this is Christ showing up to us in this meal, we ought to be willing to be surprised by what we find in this meal. I think too often we expect so little from the table and so that's what we receive. That's what we get. But I believe, I really do believe this. I believe that there is healing possible for us in this meal. John Wesley, Anglican priest, he called the Eucharist a converting sacrament. What's he suggesting? That this meal has the power of actually bringing us into life with Christ. Whatever you need, healing, faith, perseverance to suffer well. Whatever it is, is offered to us at this table. So long as we come with humility, so long as we come with a hunger. A few quick thoughts about how this meal forms our lives. This meal, again, is a meal of hospitality, which means that this meal offers us a word of welcome. Rowan Williams says, for Christians, to share in the Eucharist, the Holy Communion, 
means to live as people who know they are always guests, that they have been welcomed and that they are wanted. In Holy Communion, Jesus Christ tells us that he wants our company. When we look at the life of Jesus, as we've already said, there seem to be endless stories of him sharing his meals and his life with people. It was a defining characteristic of his ministry that he sought out other people's company. In Luke 19, we see this familiar story of Zacchaeus. And we've talked about this before, that Jesus walks through this crowd of people and walks directly to this strange little man who's found himself up in a tree. And Jesus says to him these words, aren't you going to ask me to your home? Aren't you going to ask me to your home? And this is what's so striking about the hospitality of Jesus, is that Jesus is not just one who is hospitable, but he is the one who draws out hospitality from other people. That by his welcome, he makes us people who are capable of welcoming others. So when we come to this meal, we are the guests of Jesus, and we are here because Jesus asks us to be here. And our response to that invitation is everything. Because we are people who have heard this invitation, we are simultaneously set free to invite Jesus into our lives and then to literally receive Christ into our bodies. We are welcomed and we welcome. We welcome God and we welcome our unexpected neighbors. It's interesting that later on in Luke's gospel, This is one of these post-resurrection stories. And Jesus, this time, he doesn't wait for an invitation to come in. He's just already present with them, that he comes through the locked doors. And in this moment, he looks at his disciples, and the first thing he says to them is, don't be afraid. And then, aren't you going to give me something to eat? It's the same tone of voice that he uses with Zacchaeus. But this time, Jesus doesn't wait for an invitation to come in. He's just already present with them. The difference is that he's asking whether or not they're going to make room for him at the table. Can I sit down with you? Are you offering me part of this meal? And I think there is a way that we can come to this table week after week. If we don't come with a sense of humility and a sense of hunger, or we come doing our own thing and we forget to invite Jesus to the table... Everything changes for us when we recognize that we are the ones that Jesus has invited. Can I sit down with you? Are you offering me part of this meal? This becomes a significant marker for the people of God. In the book of Acts, the apostles, they identify themselves as witnesses. And they say this, we are the ones who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. This becomes the marker of the apostles. And what is a significant marker for the first Christians becomes a claim that we can lay hold to now in the 21st century. That because we are the ones who invited to this meal, we too are the ones who, just like the apostles, are the ones whom Jesus ate and drank with after he was raised from the dead. We participate in the same practice that they did. This is the word of welcome. That because we have experienced the hospitality of God in Christ, 
we're now set free to be hospitable to others. Hospitable without any judgment about whether or not those who we invite are right or worthy or deserve it. We simply invite them because we are people who have been invited. Second thing I want us to see today is the way that this meal orients us to understanding God as the giver. We call this meal Eucharist because it's a word that simply means thanksgiving. It's thanksgiving because it orients us as the people who have heard Christ's invitation and to see what we receive as gift, to see everything that we receive as gift. We hear this explicitly in the, in the liturgy that Jesus gives thanks. He gives thanks. But think about the context in which we hear those words. Jesus is at the Passover meal. He's with his disciples. The shadow of Gethsemane is in front of him. He knows one of them at the table is going to betray him. And he knows that he is about to go and die a horrific death. And what does Jesus do at that moment? He gives thanks. When we come to this meal and we stretch out our hands in front of us, we are asking to receive a gift that is freely given to us. And when we assume this posture week after week after week, we will begin to see that God doesn't only offer this gift of God's Son in the Eucharist, but God offers us the gift of every moment of our lives, of every person, of every good and perfect thing that we receive. And because God was still at work at that meal with Jesus and his disciples in the shadow of Gethsemane, and every object that we see, God is at work. God is at work in every meal that we share, in everything that we handle, in every bad day. God, the giver, is present to us. So, if we are people who take seriously the gift of the Eucharist, the gift of thanksgiving, we start to take seriously the whole material order of the world. We become people, as Rowan Williams would say, that start to see everything in some sense sacramentally. That we start to see all of creation charged in some way with God's grace. We start to see everything as gift. The way that we receive this gift, it opens up on the way that we receive every good gift from God. And here's the trick that everything you have, everything you see, every person that you know is a gift. Can we receive it? Even the bad, trusting that God is still at work somehow. Speaking of bad, this moment of coming to the table urges us into this moment of honest repentance. The liturgy that we say every week insists on these words on the night that he was betrayed. Now, there's been long-standing arguments in the church about whether the institution of the Eucharist happens before Judas left the room. Did it happen after Judas left the room? I don't think all of that's very much important. What I do think is important is remembering that Judas was still invited Judas was still one for whom room was made 
at the table. And that's where we find ourselves week after week after week. That to know that all of us on some level betray God's goodness in our lives. All of us betray our humanity and what God desires for us. But then week after week after week, betrayers though we are, we keep getting invited back. There's still room made for us at this table to share in the body and the blood of Jesus. Rowan Williams says this, That is why the Eucharist is not, in Christian practice, a reward for good behavior. It is the food we need to prevent ourselves from starving as a result of our own self-enclosure and self-absorption, our pride and our forgetfulness. Again, we come to this meal not as people who are doing well, but because we are people who are doing badly. There's no room for us to come to this meal disillusioned with who we are. We, alongside the disciples and the apostles and the entire communion of saints, are those who are liable to forget, to betray, and to run. And still we are called back and invited again and again, week after week, to bear witness to the new thing that God is doing in us, to see ourselves made new. The new beloved community is being established And to see the world in a fresh way, to see all of humanity and the created world as a place where the giving of God is always at work. That's the invitation. Of course, last point. We need to be aware that in all of this, we are dependent on the work of the Spirit. Of course, we have to remember that everything we're saying and everything we're doing is really a trusting of the work of the Spirit in our lives. In this liturgy, we call down the Holy Spirit on ourselves. You'll oftentimes see people in the congregation cross themselves when we ask the Holy Spirit to fall on us who are about to receive these gifts. And we're asking that by the Spirit's help, we might stay open to the grace that's offered to us in this meal. And then we call down the Holy Spirit on the gifts themselves, on the bread and the wine, trusting that the gifts themselves will be transformed into something more than bread and wine. If any kind of transformation is going to be possible for us, it will only happen by the Spirit's work in our midst. We are the people who are transformed into the people of God. And then we go from the table to the work of transfiguring the world by God's power. This is why we so often end our services. Let us go forth to love and serve the Lord as we're sent back out into the world. Rowan Williams says that as we add our amen to the liturgy, And we receive these gifts. There is a moment when we can look around and we can see what he calls the beginning of the end of the world. Not in some apocalyptic sense, like day after tomorrow sense, but the end of all things. When we and all of creation become what we and they were always meant to be. That's the glimpse that we get after we receive these gifts. 
The question becomes for us, do we have the imagination to glean just a little bit of what God imagines for us? Can we see ourselves rightly? Because when we see ourselves and others as invited, as welcomed, as wanted, when we see every moment and every person as gift, and when we see ourselves as we really are, those who are the ones prone to betray and to run and to forget who we are and what God has done for us, in that moment we get a glimpse, just a glimpse of the end of the world, how the world's calling is fulfilled in advance, even if just for a moment, seeing ourselves and our world as we really are. So we come as those who have heard the invitation of Jesus to come with our hands stretched open in front of us, ready to receive not just this gift, but every gift that God offers to us. Amen.